the year was 2002. I was a fairly young pastor, found myself pastoring a church that I, in retrospect, probably wasn't ready to pastor, made my way into the office, the pastor's study, and on the bookshelf there were a handful of books, probably five or six, that in hindsight now I, I can see, at least I think, were left there strategically by the former pastor. And I'm thankful for them. One of which was John MacArthur's book, Ashamed of the Gospel. I don't know if any of you have read that. It's really geared towards uh, those who are in some type of church leadership, but every believer would benefit from it. The basic premise of the book is do not be ashamed of the gospel. Preach the gospel, build your ministry around the gospel, seek to build a church around the gospel, and that type of thing. So it was greatly encouraging to me and something that really set the course for me. And I would still consider that book one of the the top five practical books that I've read on how to be a pastor, that kind of thing. But there was another book that was on that shelf that I pulled down and I pulled that same book off my shelf this morning and I tried to remember this morning, how did this book come into my possession? I don't remember buying it. I don't remember anyone giving it to me. So it must have been, and I think it was, included in that little number of books on that shelf that I inherited from a former pastor. The the title of the book was Putting Amazing Back into Grace. And it's one of Michael Horton's books. I think probably by this time, you fast forward 20 to 30 years after he wrote this book, it would be considered one of his classics. So I began to read that book. And by the end of the book, I am thankful that the Lord used it in my life to put back into my understanding of grace the word amazing. We sing it, John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace. But when we begin to look at verses like we've been looking at the last several weeks out of Ephesians, and we see the biblical truth that is there, then amazing is being put back into this thing we call grace. Because from beginning to end, as Paul has told us, this grace is of God. So in speaking about this book, I wanted to give you a couple of quotes, and I want you to try to put yourselves in, in my shoes, if you would, running across this book, literally stumbling across this book, knowing now that the Lord does all things well and he does all things providentially. He orders our steps. He gives us what we need when we need it. And just a little caveat here, one of my good friends that you know, Mac Tomlinson, gives this warning when you're recommending books. He says, just be careful. Not, not every book that is ministered to you in such a great and impactful way will do the same immediately to someone else. And you've, you know that, right? Someone recommends a book, you get the book and you read it and you're like... Pick that same book up 10 years later and it may be just what you need for that time. That's happened to me numerous times. 
buy a book, begin to try to read it, and it just doesn't come alive, right? And so you put it back on the shelf, you forget about it, and then years later you take that same book off the shelf and you ask the question, where have you been all my life? You're just what I needed. And the Lord does that type of thing. But try to put yourself in my shoes as a young pastor, not really honestly not knowing a whole lot of biblical doctrine, only having preached, this is not an exaggeration, only having preached about a dozen times, now finding myself preaching two to three times a week. It took me three months to prepare one sermon. Now I had to do three in a week, and it, was, it almost put me under. I, I almost, it's only by the grace of God that I was sustained in that. But here are the things that I was reading back then that really began to spin the wheels in my understanding and my thinking. And the only way that I can testify of this to you it's like when I read this, even though on the surface and outwardly I was holding at arm's length, there was something inside me like a little bell that was ringing, that was compelling. It was like, this is true. You're going to have to come to grips with this. And not only come to grips with it, but glory in it. And so Michael Horton says, and, and I pulled the book off the shelf this morning and I just thumbed through and saw the highlights that I'd highlighted almost 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. And he says things like this. He said, when I'm talking to someone who has an issue with Romans 9, and in case you're not overly familiar with Romans 9, that chapter presses hard the sovereignty of God in salvation and in life. He says, one of the questions that I ask first is whether that person believes in salvation by grace alone. The usual response is, of course, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But over time, I've come to find that if I ask that same person or prompt them, they will say, yes, I am saved because I said yes to Christ. When the biblical doctrine of election turns to your proud heart and mind and says you were saved because Christ said yes to you. He has drawn you in. Then he says things like this. I am a Christian because God wanted me to be a Christian, and he saw to it that, he would, that his will would be realized in spite of all the odds stacked against it. <laughs> and those odds are Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, right? If we go back and we look at that, being dead in sin, walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and mind, and we're just like the rest, by nature children of wrath. And aren't you thankful? Even having read 1 John chapter 5, I think this was just yesterday morning, we love him. Because he first loved us. We love him because he initiated the love. And this is one more quote from Michael Horton. He says, no doctrine, and here again he's referring to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. No doctrine will drive out the self-help narcissism from our churches and pulpits like this one. No doctrine is better suited to make God's justifying grace in Christ more central. 
No doctrine is more successful than putting man in his place and seeing God in his place. And if I could show you the book, I not only underlined that sentence, I highlighted that sentence, I had stars in the margin, I had written my own little notes in there. Sometimes that's really embarrassing when I go back and read things that I had read 20 years ago, or it's even more embarrassing to go back and look at a a sermon manuscript from 20 years ago. It's frightening. But this one, I remember that this is why. That this is why I did all of those things. Because it's true. 22 or 3 years now has proven the point that there is no doctrine like the sovereignty of God in salvation that will drive out the self-help narcissistic thinking not only in our own minds, but in a church as a whole. And you understand narcissism, right? It's, the, it's self-love at any cost. Let me be at the top of whatever the discussion is. What drives that out of us spiritually is to exalt God in his rightful place. And so last week we looked at the gift of God. Let me reread those verses 8 and 9 out of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And what we saw there, what we see there, what throughout the rest of our time on earth as pilgrims and strangers will be, is that we see that from any angle we look at salvation. From any angle we stand in awe of salvation, we must give all glory to God. There is no angle from, by which we can view salvation and have anything in which to boast ourselves. And isn't that what Paul says? Salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. When we press these verses, when the Spirit of God takes these verses and opens them to us, we begin to see that even faith itself is a gift of God. Faith is a product of or fruit of the new birth, not the other way around. The other way around commonly expressed is the new birth or salvation is the product of our faith and our faith being that which we have given to God when in reality, though I realize our minds have trouble with this, we submit our will to God in his revelation here. In reality, from beginning to end, the Lord has awakened us. He has given us a new birth. He has given us now the ability to respond to the best news ever in faith and to use Sinclair Ferguson's words from last week. Faith is our response, but not our contribution. Faith is how we apprehend, how we appropriate the good news of the gospel but even in that, we attribute it in all of its goodness to God. And I can say all of that, and I say all of this because this is the summary of it in the 10th verse. And even as I say that, I realize that there are for some, as with me, 
to come to grips with these types of things to, to where you can not only bear them but glory in them it takes a lot of grace, a lot of work. I'll tell you how far removed I was from anything even remotely of what Paul is saying here. We, we, we like to attribute the recovery or the reformation of salvation by grace through faith to the Reformation and to men like Martin Luther who would read the scriptures both Old and New Testament and submit his mind to them going even so far as when called to trial saying I cannot recant my conscience is held captive to the word of God sometimes we have to unlearn things that we've learned and that's difficult. Some of you probably have seen this. It's a meme. And it paints a vivid picture of, of me 25 years ago. Maybe it paints a vivid picture of you concerning biblical doctrine today. You might have seen this. There was a, a man sitting in a chair in a room with all of his, his paint out and his brushes, and he's got all his, his easel is there, and he has just completed this most amazing picture of a fire burning in a fireplace. Have any of you seen this? And he's sitting there in this chair in front of that picture, holding his hands out to it, trying to warm his hands. And he's sitting there in front of this picture, not only holding his hands out, but what you see is he's up real close to it. And you can tell by the, the image that the room is supposed to be cold and he's really hoping he's going to be warmed by this fire. And then there is this caption attached to this. And the caption reads, Most people really don't want the truth. They just want constant reassurance that what they believe is truth. And so you really have to examine your own heart and ask the question, do I really want the truth of the living God or do I just want someone to tell me that what I believe is true? And let me just say, you can find that person. You can find that person to agree with you. You can find that person to tell you whatever you want to hear. You can find that person to affirm you. I can find people to affirm what I want to be true. But that doesn't negate the fact that as Christians, individually, we have to come to the Scriptures and we have to have the Spirit of God take His inspired Word and make it real and alive so that it's not something of our own creation that we're trying to gain benefit from, but it's the real and true revelation of the living God. And that, that applies to any doctrine, not just this one specific doctrine that we've been looking at for several weeks. It applies to anything. And very often in my own life, I've just had to, as, as honestly before God as I can, say, okay, I'm done trying to defend a position. I'm done trying to justify a position that I've held for 20 years. 
Just show me what's right and true. And I'll submit my heart and mind to it. And whatever consequences come, then give grace to work through those consequences. And I think all of us would say, I want to be on any point of doctrine as, as close to the truth as I can be. As close to the truth as I can be. Well, let's look at verse 10 as being the summary of really everything that has taken place in this second chapter. The first word, the same that we dealt with in the beginning of verse 8, verse 8 itself was a summary of the first seven verses. Now verse 10 is a summary of the first nine. And we see how intricately when we begin to study these things that Paul has put them together The first word obviously being for, so it grabs everything prior and brings it to the table. Everything in the first nine verses are are brought to this understanding in the tenth verse. And I realize many can quote verses eight and nine, but can I encourage you, add verse ten to that. It is indeed glorious to be able to quote and to call to mind, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But add to your memory bank and hide in your heart the tenth verse, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's look at this word workmanship the word literally means a thing that is made it's used for a finished product it's not something that's in the making it's something that is complete it is done every detail has been added to it all of the i's have been dotted the t's crossed or whatever language you want to use this is a finished product and it's usually in reference to a to a work of art like a painting though it could be used also in literature for a poem and that's if you were to study the the original word here it is the word that we get our english word poem from so it's a finished product that's a work of art that has been created, that has been made. And when we look at it in the 10th verse, it says, for we are his workmanship. And so I believe this is Paul's way and the Spirit's way as he inspired Paul to write, to one last time bring all of these things together, tie it all together one more time, and press the fact that this whole idea and issue of salvation, redemption, regeneration, conversion, all of these things together, that this is God's doing in such a way that we have been put together as His end finished product. Everything that was necessary to make this product in the end be what He wanted it to be, He has not only supplied, but He has put it together the way that He has desired. It would be one thing for me if you gave me all the paint, all the brushes, the canvas, everything that I needed to be able to paint a picture. It would look like a second grader had done it by the time I got through with it. 
But if you give that same material to some of you or, or to my son-in-law, Steve, when he gets done, or those of you who have the gift, when you get done, there's going to be something there. There's going to be something there that you can see and appreciate, and you will come away from it thinking, how great is this artist? When we view the end product of salvation in ourselves or in our brothers and sisters, we should have the same sense of awe. How great is the God who put this together? And don't forget the first nine verses. You know, it's, it's unlike to a degree of his original creation, the physical creation. There we're told that he began with nothing and he created everything good. But in the, in the spiritual realm, as far as salvation goes, once man fell in the garden, mankind was completely devastated, ruined in the fall. And so salvation of mankind, God is not starting with nothing and ending up with something perfect. He's starting with that which is devastatingly ruined. That which has fallen to such a degree that if he does not intervene, there is nothing in the world or out of the world that can be done. So it gives us a different, a little bit of, if it doesn't give us a different perspective, at least a new appreciation that this workmanship spoken of in verse 10 is not only God's doing, but he has done the unthinkable. He has taken the utterly ruined, devastated me and the utterly ruined and devastated you and he has brought us out of that place. He has freed us from the tyranny of sin. He has found us in our trespasses and sins. He has rescued us from the prince of the power of the air. He has taken us even while we were fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. He has come to us while we were children of wrath. And he has made us objects of his mercy. He has in every way given us beauty for ashes, hasn't he? He has in every way taken that which was hopelessly lost and made it gloriously found. We are his workmanship. Paul words this in such a way that only glory can be given to God. Notice that there's no synergism at work here. Synergism being the idea that, that multiple things contribute to the end product. This is what is called a monergistic work. There is one person operative here, and that person is the his of the 10th verse. We are his workmanship. What you are today as compared to what you were prior to your salvation is owing to the grace and mercy of God. What did you contribute? The sin that made it necessary. And that's it. That's, am that's amazing grace, isn't it? That there was nothing in me, nothing. Nothing in me. But yet this merciful God has acted towards me in grace, in Christ. Can I remind you of a few things out of the first chapter where we began? 
Doesn't this make you want to take these words for your own and, and trumpet them? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. If you keep reading, you remember it's according to His good pleasure. It's according to His will. And He's done everything necessary to make that will of His a reality in our lives. We're His workmanship. To Him be all glory and praise. Verse 10 tells us not only are we His workmanship, but that we have been created in Christ Jesus. His workmanship created in Christ. And this reveals again that everything points to Jesus Christ in the salvation of mankind. There is no salvation outside of Christ. There is no workmanship of God outside of Jesus Christ. God, His Father, did not go around Him, neither can we. If we would have everything that the Scriptures say that we can have as the redeemed of God, it will flow to us out of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You can't find it anywhere else. But notice what he says that we have been created in Christ Jesus for. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so we find in this same paragraph the biblical understanding of works. Salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast, but we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so you can summarize that even more. Salvation is not of works, it's unto or for works. We aren't saved by what we do, but we're saved to do. And we can reiterate this fact by this saying, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. What does that mean? It means that the faith that saves you, according to verse 10, the faith that saves you is going to produce in you a measure of good works. So let me read you a couple of verses, and you can turn there if you wish, because this is not just some obscure teaching embedded here in Ephesians chapter 2. But if you were to turn to somewhere like Titus chapter 2, Paul's short letter, and look at the 14th verse. If you begin reading in verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, 
and purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. And you can flip over to the third chapter of that same letter and look down at verse 8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And thinking of good works, according to Paul there at that last phrase, this is why I believe, again, this is Martin Luther, he would say, God does not need your good works, your neighbor does. And isn't that what Paul says here? These things, these good works that we are to be careful to maintain are good and profitable to men. Good and profitable to men. But then, interestingly, if you go back to the 10th verse of Ephesians chapter 2, even at this point, and the point being the fruit of salvation in the life of a believer, even at this point, the Scriptures declare again the sovereignty of God. Notice, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so, one of my favorite commentators, Curtis Vaughn, you probably know that by now, he says of this thought, that these works were prepared beforehand by God. He says, these works are not mere incidental accompaniments of the Christian life. They are a part of God's eternal plan for His people. We are created for these good works, and they await our doing. They await our doing created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So how, how can we not see? It's only if we willfully choose to put blinders over our eyes. How can we not see the gracious working of God behind everything? Calling us out of sin creating us anew, giving a heart of flesh where there was once a heart of stone, giving sight to eyes that were once blind, giving the ability to hear to ears that were once deaf, bringing us to faith in Christ, giving ability where there was no ability. Can I remind you of what Jesus said? No man can come. The word can there speaks to your ability and mine. No man can come to the Father unless the Father does something, right? Initiates, drawing, bringing us unto himself. So behind every every facet of salvation from beginning to end, what we find is the marvelous, amazing grace of God on display. And so we might ask the question. We see it's the expectation of Scripture that those who are saved and are really the masterpiece, that's 
not an unfaithful translation of the word workmanship. The masterpieces of God are saved and created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It's a fair question to ask then, what are good works? What is the expectation now of me? And let's not take for granted that all see it as an expectation. You've probably heard, at least to some degree or another, what's called the lordship controversy, right? John MacArthur was at the, at the point of this decades ago, and it still rages today. And the teaching would go something like this. He affirms that those who are saved will give good evidence and fruit of it. You will know a tree by its fruit. And then there were some who would say, no, a person can be saved and never give any evidence or fruit of it at all. And I like, I don't remember who this was original to, but something I read years ago, it says, let's just realize that this is a contemporary Christian dilemma. First century Christians did not have this dilemma as to whether or not they would be enslaved to Christ, whether or not they would have Christ as their Lord. Really, this dilemma is spawned and given, given rise to those who want Christ and salvation but want nothing to do with His commands. Want nothing to do with walking in obedience to Him. And it's my own personal conviction from the Scriptures that you can't have Him as one or the other. He is both. The Scriptures say as much, this Jesus, He has made both Lord and and Christ, both Lord and Savior. And isn't that really at the heart of what Paul is teaching here? On the heels of teaching of the grace of God in salvation, he says, in summary of all of these things, bring all of this to the table. You have been created by God. You are His workmanship. You've been created in Christ Jesus. And, by the way, these works that you're now to walk in were prepared beforehand by God. What are these good works? And why does my neighbor need them? Well, I, I gave a little bit of thought to that this week, and this is, this, is, this is mine, so if you can pick it apart, please do so. I think a basic understanding of a good work is anything done in obedience to a clear command or expectation of Scripture? And then I realize that's far-reaching. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you do that, it's a good work, but it's also being obedient to a clear command of Scripture. Anything that we do that gives glory to God and that is birthed from and out of our thanksgiving and gratitude for salvation is a good work that is to be addressed to someone around us. Evangelism, your speaking the good word to someone is a good work. Your relieving the temporal, physical need of someone is a good work. And isn't that what John say? How can you who profess to be Christians, I'm paraphrasing his word, how can you who profess to be a Christian see your brother in need, shut up your heart against them, and still have any reasonable expectation that you are Christian? A good work is 
a merciful work. Seeing your brother in need, having in your possession what would be a help to them, and willfully, cheerfully giving that to them. All of those things that people suppose will get them into heaven on this side of salvation are to be carried over on the other side and to see that these are not what earn us anything, but these things are done because of what we've been given. We're gracious to those around us because we've been dealt with graciously. We're merciful to those around us because we have been dealt with mercifully. We love those around us because we have been loved. And you could apply that same line of thinking to any activity that you go out and in the name of Christ, and didn't Jesus say, even giving a cup of cold water? Just a small seemingly insignificant thing, if you do it as unto him and unto his glory, it's a good work. But we have to understand this whole issue of works rightly. And here I'm going to repeat myself intentionally. You have to understand the relationship of grace and works. If we were to go out on the street and ask a hundred people, do you expect to go to heaven when you die? The vast majority of those people are going to say yes. And if you ask them why, that's their expectation. The vast majority of the time, they're going to say something in regard to what a good person they are, what good things they do, and the fact that in their estimation, they do far more good than bad. And in the end, how could a gracious and loving, merciful God send anyone to hell anyway? The vast majority of people around you and around me believe that they are saved by what they do. Saved by works. And that's far-reaching. Some believe wrongly and damningly that they are saved by their baptism. Baptismal regeneration. Get in the water and you're redeemed. Then it goes all the way to the other end of the spectrum. Some people work tirelessly trying to ensure that when their eyes close in death, they can have some measure of confidence. But all of that dissipates and fades in the face of what the Bible teaches about good works as far as it relates to how you are saved. What does Paul say again? It's not of works. Not in the least. And why is that? So that there would be no boasting. And just make this correlation in your mind. If God has done it all, and the Scripture declares that He has done it all, then isn't it blasphemous, really, to take any measure of that for ourselves and to boast in His sight? To not give him all glory? Will a man rob God? That's the question that the prophet asks in a different context. But the answer to that always is, yeah, given opportunity, a man will rob God of tithes and offerings, yes. But even in glory as to who is ultimately responsible for salvation.
So there is on this side good works put in their place have nothing to do, nothing whatsoever to do with whether or not you will be saved. You don't have to do X amount of them to become savable. You don't have to do another X amount of them to be saved at all. But the Christian life is not devoid of good works, is it? On the other side of salvation, after grace has come, after you have been saved by grace through faith, you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's now the expectation that is placed upon me and you. That we will minister to those around us in the name of Christ. And that we will do these good works. And you might even notice that distinguishing feature here in these verses. Salvation is not of works, but it is for good works. All of these things that impart grace to those around us are good works. And notice the end of this verse, that we should walk in them. It's the normal course of your life and mine now as believers in Jesus Christ that we should habitually walk in good works. And we might say, that's tiring. It's wearying to continually and habitually give to those around you. Whether it's the ministering to a brother or sister or whether it's acts of mercy to those who are outside of Christ. And I'm fairly certain that Paul understood that. That's why he would give us verses elsewhere that say, do not grow weary in well-doing. And why he would give us a verse like this at the end of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. Some of us need to hear this and hear it often. The end of the 15th chapter, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So there I think the equation is made of good works and labor. Isn't that the obvious thing? Good works are work. <laughs> and they're the expectation of you and me as a Christian. In fact, we could go so far as we've been saved unto them, for them. And they've been prepared for us beforehand by God. Salvation beginning to end is according to the amazing grace of God made known to us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray You would help us to submit our understanding to it pray you would help us to glory in it. Help us to understand the relationship 
of salvation and works. Even the youngest mind and heart. Would you teach and reveal that relationship? We're not saved by them, but we're saved unto them. We're saved to go out and to minister to those around us tirelessly, giving of ourselves to show the goodness of Christ, to preach the good news. Lord, we pray that in obedience to these things that you would save those around us and that when these good works that we perform because of grace known, these good works that we perform, they might spur the question in the hearts of those around us of what is the reason for the hope that is within us. And then that good work has opened the door to share the good news. Lord, help us to be obedient to these things. Help us to marvel at your grace and mercy. We're thankful that you have invested so much in each one of us. We are your workmanship, your finished product. We are justified forever in your sight. Help us now in the realm of being further sanctified to grow in the likeness of Christ and in his image to be conformed to him. We pray you would make us useful and profitable servants, that we would lay up treasure in heaven, that we would be able to, as we sang earlier, cast our trophies at your feet and crown you Lord of all. Lord, we're in awe of your mercy given to people like us. We pray that you would help us to make the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ known. And we ask it in his name. Amen.